Open your Bibles to uh, 1 John chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to pick up in verse 11, but before we get there, last week we, we saw a distinct contrasting. We're going to see another distinct contrasting this week. It's one of the things John does in the, in the, in the epistle of 1 John. The contrast we saw last week was between those who John spoke of as children of God and those he spoke of as children of the devil. And what we saw is that the distinction is seen clearly in how an individual lives their lives. Those that are born of God live as Christ lived. They're followers of Jesus Christ. They're looking to Christ as their model. And admittedly, none of us are fully conformed to the likeness of Christ. None of us are, are, are going to live perfectly. But what you see when you look at a child of God is that the habit of those who are born of God is to live in ways that are pleasing to God. John calls this doing what is right or living righteously. And those who live this way, John says, find a joy in their fellowship with God, a joy that's full and complete in their fellowship with God and with the body of Christ. Those who are children of the devil habitually seek their happiness in the things of the world. When you look at the habit of their life, for the child of God, his habit, though he's not perfect, is always going to be to turn back to pleasing God. That will be habit. For the one that's a child of the devil, the habit of their life is always going to be to turn back to the things of the world to find fullness in their life. And those that are, that are children of the devil are typically not, they're not going to acknowledge that they're children of the devil. In fact, the deceit of the devil, John says that the devil is a liar, that he's, he's he, when he speaks, he speaks, speaks his native tongue, which is lies. He opens his mouth, he's lying. Between the deceit of the devil and the deceitfulness of our own hearts, I'm convinced that there are a great many people, perhaps most people, that are children of the devil that have no idea that they're children of the devil. And many of these within the walls of the church are going to be these that cry sincerely, Lord, Lord, when they stand before God in judgment. Lord, didn't we, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? But if they were deceived into thinking that their attendance in church or their appearances or whatever small gifts they may have given along the way that didn't inconvenience them or discomfort them in any way, that that was simply enough. And they returned. Their habit, though, when, when it came to looking for happiness was to return to the things of the world as opposed to seeking out God and living in ways that would, would honor him. And if you're wondering, am I one of these people? And could I possibly? When you're talking about being deceived, it's people that are, Satan has deceived them because he's a deceiver of their own hearts. This combination of deceitfulness is work conspiracy so that they think they're followers of God, but they're really not, and they don't even know it. Is it possible that I'm one of these ones that's living in the midst of that deceit? My response to you would be to examine the habit of your life. Look at the habit of your life. Paul told us to examine ourselves to see if we'd be in the faith. So as you examine the habit of your life, is it self-centered or is it God-centered? What impulse drives you? 
Is it the impulse to honor God or is it the impulse to please yourself? Is it the desire to give away or is it the desire to keep for yourself? Is it the, the willingness to suffer inconvenience, to, to suffer discomfort, to suffer maybe even indignity for the cause of Christ and standing for the cause of Christ or speaking for the cause of Christ and engaging attitudes and words that others may not find welcoming, that others may not approve of, that others may disdain you because you've taken this position as a Christ follower. Are you willing to suffer even indignities for others for the cause of Christ? Or is your desire to protect yourself? We had a a uh, uh, lady that was baptized in, in first worship, and man, she had a fear of the water, and that was clear. And, and Dan told her, you know, this, this is what we do. This is the way that we acknowledge God. And, and so she pressed through her fears, and it was a press for everyone that was here in first worship. It was obvious that she was uncomfortable. She was uncomfortable in being in front of a room full of people, and she was uncomfortable in being in the water. And in, when it came to being submerged in the water, she was very uncomfortable. And you could, you could hear that clearly. And Dan's mic was picking up her discomfort. But she pressed through her fears and she did what she perceived that God was calling her to. She endured the discomfort because she wanted to honor God. So, I mean, what, what's, your, what's the habit of your life as you examine it? Are you one that's willing to endure discomfort, inconvenience, even, you know, indignity for the cause of Christ? Or, or do you typically, you know, fall back on your, your default position is to protect yourself? The habit of your life speaks clearly about the one to whom you belong. And John draws a sharp contrast. It's a stark, sharp contrast. This week as we pick up in chapter 3 and verse 11, we're going to see a sharp contrast again drawn between the love that God calls us to show others and the complete lack of love that is demonstrated by those outside the body of Christ. In 1 John 3 and verse 11, it says, this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And we have heard this over and over again, but now he's going to give us an illustration. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, the story of Cain and Abel is told in Genesis chapter 4. It's a brief, brief story, brief passage. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Adam was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I've had a male child with the Lord's help. Then she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. And in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he didn't have regard for Cain and his offering. And Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so furious? Why do you look despondent? 
if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. Two brothers, two occupations, Abel a shepherd, Cain a farmer, two offerings, Abel's sacrifice, some of the firstborn of his flock, Cain sacrificed some of the produce from his farming. Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God, Cain's was not. Some have speculated that this acceptance by God had to do with the, the type of offering that was presented, that perhaps God preferred the sacrifice of animals as opposed to the sacrifice of produce. However, the law of Moses eventually states the acceptability of grain offerings in Leviticus chapter 2. Clearly, it, that, was, that was not the issue. As indicated by God's remarks to Cain, his sacrifice was unacceptable because of the condition of his own heart as evidenced in his attitudes. He was furious. He was despondent. And he didn't seek God to inquire as to why his offering was not accepted. He sulked. He was angry at God's rejection. And God told him, you must choose between doing what is right and the sin that crouches at your door. God told Cain, you can rule over the sin, but only as you choose to do right, to do that which honors God. And, and this is this is what we all face. I mean, there's this choice to be made, and, and sin is crouching at the door, but there's this thing that we know is the right thing to do, the thing that honors God. And yet there's this, there's this tug. Paul referred to it as the war of the, the spirit over against the flesh. The spirit wars against the flesh because the flesh is that, that sin crouching at the door. I don't know about you, but I thought at some point the sin would go away. But after 35 years, man, the sin is still crouching at the door. You know, it's like that steady drip, drip, drip. It never goes away. The sin's always there. And there's, there's that choice to make in the course of daily life and what we do and the words we speak. Are we going to honor God or are we going to give in to this, this temptation of sin that's crouching at the door? He, God told Cain, you can rule over the sin, but only as you choose to do the thing that will honor God. Because of his anger, Cain lured his brother to a remote spot, and then he murdered him. In chapter 3 and verse 11, John says that we're to love one another, and he uses Cain as an example of the antithesis of love. And he says of Cain that he was of the evil one. In other words, he is a child of the devil. We covered that last week. Born of an earthly mother and father. He's born of Adam and Eve, yet looking for his fullness in the world and that which it could produce for him, which is descriptive of a person whose father is the devil. We know God refused his offering because he was toying with sin. He refused 
to relinquish it, to let go of it. In other words, his habit was to turn back to the world as opposed to turning back to God. When you looked at his lifestyle and the way that he lived his life, he was habitually a pursuer of the world. Thus, he was of the devil. He was a child of the devil. And so because of this heart condition of toying with sin, refusing to be given fully to God, God rejected his offering. He was self-centered as opposed to being God-centered. John tells us why he murdered his brother. His offering was rejected because he had a, a wrong attitude, a wrong heart attitude. And he was angry with God. But John tells us why he murdered his brother. I mean, why? God rejects your offering. Why go out and murder your brother as a consequence of that? John tells us. We should love one another, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? Because his works were evil. Cain's works were evil, and his brother Abel's works were righteous. Cain was angry with God because God refused his sacrifice. He murdered his brother because he resented him and his acceptance, God's acceptance of, of his sacrifice. He, he resented Abel's acceptance by God. Abel's righteous offering stood in stark contrast to Cain's unrighteous offering. And such is the nature of righteousness. It serves to, to highlight, to underscore unrighteousness. Thus, John says in his gospel in chapter 3, verse 19, light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not want to come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. John's use of, of Cain illustratively begs the question of us. Are you giving to God as Abel did in an effort to Honor God highly, to exalt God as your Lord, as your master, as one that is a disciple of Jesus Christ, your habit being to turn back to Jesus Christ. You live habitually following Jesus Christ, and if there's ever any deviation or variation, your habit is always to turn back to Christ. Or you're giving to God as, as Cain did, one whose habit was to seek his fullness in the world, but... He wanted, to, he wanted to placate God. He wanted to satisfy God. And so he, he brought him an offering, a portion of the produce of the land. You see, this was a mistaken attitude of some in the nation of Israel for hundreds of years. And Psalm chapter 50, and Psalms were written mostly during the reign of David and Solomon around that time period. So we're talking almost a 1,000 years before Jesus arrives on the scene. This is the nation of Israel. In Psalm 50, in verse 7, this is what God says to the nation of Israel. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I mean, these are people that are bringing their offerings week in and week out. 
He doesn't have a word of rebuke for them because they're failing to bring their offerings. But listen to what he says in verse 9. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the fields is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bull, bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in your day of trouble and I will deliver you. You shall glorify me in this. See, that was the nature of relationship that God wanted with the people. Not one where they're just coming and bringing offerings, but where their offerings are the sincere offering as Abel's was of one who acknowledges God as the Most High. God speaks to people that are regularly giving, and he says to them, I do not need you. Make sure your offering is one of thankfulness, one given in the right attitude, and then call upon me as Lord. This is the relationship I want with you, that you would acknowledge me as Lord and call upon me as Lord, and I will deliver you. God does not need us in order to be satisfied. And God will not be placated. If you want to ensure God's wrath, I mean, if you're looking for a pathway to anger God, then try to placate him. Try to appease him. Try to, to pacify God in some way, shape, or form. God wants us to honor him. Cain's sin was failing to to honor God by his gift. When Abel offered God the very best he had, it shone a bright light on Cain's attempt to appease and to pacify God. So, so Cain hated his brother. He murdered his brother because he held Abel responsible for revealing the impurity of his motive, as though God didn't already know. You know? I mean, we get angry. You can't be mad at God. You can't murder God. So what do we do? We turn our fire on someplace else. And he turned his fire on the one that gave that offering that made his offering look bad. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, John says, Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. And he's reflecting back. Cain hated his brother because his brother was righteous and, and he wasn't. And he he just carries that forward and says, so don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. If we choose to live rightly as followers of Jesus, genuinely loving each other, then those God's places in our, in our, in those God places in our path, then, then those who worship the social order, those that worship the common culture, those that worship at the altar of the world, they're going to hate us. The world hates us when we speak the truth regarding sexuality, immorality, family. The world does not want to hear that there is an objective truth, an objective standard of right and wrong. The world despises us when we point out the flaws in their philosophical approach to life. Apple CEO Tim Cook, and, I, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Apple. I mean, I've, I've got an iPhone 
Siri was talking to the folks in first service last week kind of unexpectedly. I left Siri downstairs this morning. But I've got an iPhone, I've got an iPad, I've got an iPod, little shuffle that I use when I exercise. I mean, I'm a big fan of Apple products. Apple CEO Tim Cook received the Anti-Defamation League's Courage Against Hate Award recently for, quote, his work as a champion of unity, diversity, and social progress. Cook was the first openly gay CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And this is what he said in response to the receipt of that award. Since the earliest days of iTunes, the company has banned songs that spread hate. Cook said, at Apple, we're not afraid to say that our values drive our curation decisions. In other words, their values drive what they're going to make available to people on their platforms. We believe the future should belong to those who use technology to build a better, more inclusive, more hopeful world. And when I read that, I shudder. Because we are people. This is, this is our assignment as the body of Christ. That we would build a better, more inclusive, more hopeful world. But our understanding of inclusivity is inclusiveness in the body of Christ. Our understanding of hope is confidence in life eternal through Jesus Christ, that that is the better by far world that the scripture speaks of. Tim Cook is not a Christian. Tim Cook rejects completely what we believe. Tim Cook looks upon us as a homosexual. He looks upon us as haters because of the things that we build. So when Apple and Apple's leadership are the ones that are going to determine what is better and what's more inclusive and what's more hopeful. It sends a shudder down my spine. But you know, it's, this is the world in which we live. When the likes of Tim Cook or Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg or the leaders of Google or Twitter or Instagram or any other of these media platforms begins to set standards for morality in our, in our country, we can rest assured that they will eliminate those things with which they don't agree eventually. And, and, and we may not be there yet, but we're moving in that direction. The result of this approach is the influence of these major thought makers it's seen all the way down to our local school boards and governments and the decisions that they make regarding our children and, and subsequent generations that are coming behind us it's reflected in the militants of liberal instructors and the confusion of college students who adopt crazy ideas that these influential people propagate and these these individuals these individuals are shifting the moral standards of our country in these these days I read a Fox News report, and th this is a, a report from 2011. This is seven years ago. So an honor student in Fort Worth, Texas, was sent to the principal's office and punished for telling a classmate that he believes homosexuality is wrong. Young Christian man. 
Dakota Airy was suspended from school for the infraction. His mother engaged legal counsel to address the issue, and the suspension was eventually lifted, and the disciplinary remarks were expunged from his record so that those things didn't follow him scholastically. But the teacher, who according to the news report, and this is a quote, had posted a picture of two men kissing on a wall in the class, told students, this is happening all over the world, and you need to accept the fact that homosexuality is just a part of our culture now. The teacher was not suspended for his actions. There was no disciplinary measures that were taken with regard to the teacher. All of this taking place in a ninth grade German class. So you tell me what this discussion has to do with German and learning a language and what any of this has to do, why this is being told to ninth grade students. And this was, this was seven years ago. John says, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Then in verse 14, the contrast begins. We, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And, and I want to point out to you here, when he talks about brothers, the context in which he's talking about brothers is Cain and Abel. One a follower of Christ, one a child of the evil one, according to Scripture. These are not brothers in Christ. These are not brothers by way of their fellowship of God. He's, he's, so when he's talking about brothers, he, we know that we pass from death to life because we love our brothers. He's not just talking about we know we pass from death to life because we love these that are our brothers in Christ and the, in the body of Christ. He's talking about brothers in a much broader context. We know we pass from death to life because we love other people. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Cain hated his brother, murdered his brother, because the light of Abel's righteous attitude towards God served to highlight his godlessness, his selfishness, his self-centeredness. And to continue to live as he chose, he needed to eliminate that which stood in opposition. So he murdered the one that he hated. We can rest assured that we have life in Christ because we don't have that attitude. The attitude we have is an attitude of love towards others. We may hate the attitudes that they express. I dislike exceedingly the arrogance expressed by those who set their own standards of morality apart from God. I don't know how you do that. You know, once we say we have no ultimate standard of righteousness, and somebody says, we're going to set standards of morality, then I'm going, okay, according to who? There's arrogance in expressing your own standards of right, righteousness apart from God. But I don't hate these people. I don't hate Tim Cook. I don't hate Mark Zuckerberg. I don't hate Sundar Pichai, the head of Google, or any other of the heads of major tech information companies. I don't even know these individuals. But the attitudes they express are clearly not in alignment with God's word. So I assume they're not followers 
of Jesus Christ. They're lost. They don't know Jesus. They don't know the truth. And God has called us to love them. And to love them how? To love them the way that Jesus did. Jesus loved the lost. He loved the lost so greatly that he exchanged a throne in heaven for a cross on earth. He exchanged the dignity of a king for the indignities afforded a criminal. Jesus surrendered all he had to surrender that we might have life. Jesus sowed his greatest resources to our most desperate need. John 3.16 says this, 1 John 3.16, this is how we've come to know love. By way of what Jesus did. This is how we've come to know and understand what love is. He laid down his life for us. So we also should lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but closes his eyes to the need, how can God's love reside in him? And once again, this call to love Brothers is exemplified by that story of the good Samaritan. Samaritan didn't even know the guy on the side of the road. He didn't know what his religious beliefs were. He didn't know if there was a unity between the two with regard to their approach to God. He just saw somebody in need. So again, I would appeal to you that this utilization of brothers is broad and wide. It's other People, if you see someone in need and you have resource to meet that need and you, you close your eyes to that need and you walk on by, how can God's love reside in you? We should lay down our lives for others. Why? To demonstrate God's love in meeting their needs. What Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.43, I read it to you a couple of weeks ago. You've heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What are you praying for those who persecute you? You know, what you're not praying is, is, Lord, please let them quit persecuting me. You're praying for them. So what are you praying for those that persecute you? You're praying for them that God would open their eyes to the truth, that if the end of persecution comes, that it would come by way of their revelation of who God is and who Jesus Christ is and that they would cease to persecute you because now they view you as a brother in Christ. They love you as a brother in Christ now, so the, per- the persecution ceases. But you're not praying for yourself that God would cease the persecution. You're praying for that one that's persecuting you. He says... Pray, I I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is the mark of one that's a child of God. Once again, this stark contrast that's drawn. Where others hate us, try to silence us because what we say doesn't align with what they want to believe and the godlessness that they want to live. Where others hate us, we choose to love them in an effort to show them the love of God, realizing that that just as they are lost, we once were. And what did God do when we were lost? Did he choose to love us, or did he abandon us? Did he cease to love us? What was the decision 
that God made. He, he continued to love us, so we rejected him. He sent his followers to, to reach out to us, to tolerate us, even when we weren't loving us, to love us on his behalf until eventually we understood the truth that God wanted to reveal to us. Truth was revealed. We ceased to believe the lies of Satan. We chose to follow Jesus. That's, that's the way the process works. And we're, see, that's how he uses us. That's why we're here. In verse 18, John says, Little children, let us not love in, in word or, or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts. I told you as we began to study First John that one of the, the, the major themes of this book is a confident assurance of your salvation. And so he tells us here, this, this, let us not love and word and, and to talk, but let us word and love and deed and truth. And this is the way that we'll know that we're of the truth and that our heart will be reassured. This is the way that we'll know that we're children of God. This is, this is the way that we're going to be reassured. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Man, whenever, whenever Satan tries to condemn us with accusation, you know, if our habit is to turn back to God, if our habit is as a follower of Jesus Christ, then when we love in deed and truth and we examine our lives, that, that becomes clear to us. We can see and we can recognize this is not what we do in the natural man. This is not what I do before I came to Christ. I can look at my life, and I've shared this with you many times, and I can see the change that God has made. And I recognize that God's the only one that can make that change. I look at my life now, and I recognize there are things that I do that I only do them because the Spirit of God wants to do them, because Lord knows they're not things I particularly care to engage in. In the flesh, they're things that inconvenience at times. They're things that discomfort at times. I don't always gain the approval. Man, I'd like to have everybody's approval in the world, but I, I don't always gain the approval of people that disagree with the positions that I take. When you examine your life, there, there should be a habit there that you see, that as you look at that, there's reassurance, yeah. That's the Spirit of God at work. That's not me at work because those are things that I would have never done myself. That could only be the Spirit of God. And then in verse 21, he says, Dear friends, if our conscience doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God and we can receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments and do what is pleasing in his sight. And again, that's, know this, that is not a quid pro quo, that's not a, that's not a you do this and this happens, that we're, we, we keep his commands and we do what's pleasing in his sight and then he accepts us. It's we keep his commands and do what's pleasing in his sight because he's already accepted us. It's the only way that we have the ability to keep his commands and do what's right because his spirit resides within us. In verse 23, now this is the command. He says, we keep his commands and we do what is right. And this is the command, that we believe in the name of his son Christ and that we love one another as he has commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him 
And he in him, God in him, that individual abides in God and God abides in him. And the way that we know that he remains in us is from the spirit that he's given us. John shows us the sharp contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil. And it's seen clearly in the habit of their living. John shows us the sharp contrast between hatred, which endeavors to suppress everything contrary to its godlessness so that its godlessness can be accepted as normal. Love serves and sacrifices often at, at great cost in both action and speech, daring to speak the truth even when it may be offensive to others. Speaking the truth in love and the reality that we, we speak to the lost. Just as someone sent by the kindness of God once in the past spoke the truth to us that our eyes might be open, that we might have life. You know, there's, as, as I was working through this passage of Scripture, I, I kept going back to John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I'm looking at John 2.15 where he says, love not the world. And I'm you know, so I went back and I started tearing that passage apart just to make sure I understood it clearly. Pretty sure I had an understanding of it. And you probably have a pretty clear understanding of it as well. It's not complicated at all. John 2.15 says, Love not the world, nor the things of the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father's not in him. So he says, Don't love the world. John 3.16, this first John 2.15. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And, and clearly, the distinction between those two things is loving the things of the world versus loving the people of the world. God loves the people of the world, and he calls us to love them as well, all of them, regardless of race, creed, socioeconomic status, mental condition, legal circumstance, sexual preference, political position, whether they love us or they hate us, God has called us to love them. Remember, you've heard it said, love your enemy, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you might be, that's, that's, that's the distinction right there, that you might be children of your Father in heaven as opposed to children of the evil one, children of the devil. The love of others by the impulse of God's spirit within is, is what will put our minds at rest regarding salvation, reassuring us that we are indeed children of God, confident assurance is what God wants us to have. It's what John writes of. Let me ask all of you to stand. The question today is, do you have that confident assurance? When you look at the sharp contrast that John paints for us, the children of God, children of the devil, ones who love, ones who hate, what is the habit of your life when you try to discern in which camp do I fall? When you look at the way that you're living your life, is it by the impulse of God's spirit or is your habit the impulse of the flesh always to turn back to the world to find fullness? Yeah. Examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. As you examine yourself, what do you see?
if you don't see that habit that only comes by way of the impulse of the Spirit of God, our word to you today, my word to you today, God's word to you today is, is he loves you. We love you. Christ loves you. And if, if you want to walk with Christ and come journey with us, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and begin to follow him today. There's a first step that's taken, and that's the first step. You want to put your faith and trust in Jesus. I'm going to be standing here. I'd, I'd love to have a word of prayer with you. We have people that will counsel with you. We will walk with you together. You know, we, we know what it is. We were there once. We realized our eyes were open to the love of Christ. My prayer is that your eyes would be open to the love of Christ. And for the rest of you, man, examine yourself. You, you want the habit of your life to be that turning always to Christ to honor him with the way that you live. That's the mark of a child of God. That's the mark of one that truly loves, the one that's willing to serve and sacrifice regardless of what it is that God places in front of them. And that's how you are assured that you belong to God. That's the thing that sets your heart at ease. Is your heart at ease today? Examine yourself. You respond to God.